Now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Be seated. The stories coming out of Ukraine have been heartbreaking, to say the least, and hard to hear, and, um, and they've raised some theological questions. One of the reports I read, the reporter was interviewing a Ukrainian woman who had lost a loved one. I think it was her grandson had died as a result of the shelling. And she was crying out. She uh, was crying out on behalf of her nation. She was saying, who will come and help us? Uh, Who will come and give us peace? And then this is what really caught my attention. She said, all we want is world peace. These are the cries that emerge when we see suffering and evil. And it raises questions. Who has the will to overcome evil? And who has the power to bring peace A lasting peace. Our reading from Revelation 5 gives us the answer. As John receives a vision of heaven. This vision begins, not in our bulletin, but in the scripture. Begins with the statement that the door of heaven was open. And John sees there a vision of one who has ultimate power. And he can bring ultimate peace. And that is a slain lamb, ironically. It's the slain lamb. Verse 6, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And then using this symbolism of the number seven, which in Scripture is a a number of fullness or completeness. Seven horns, seven eyes, the seven spirits of God. Horns symbolizing power. This slain lamb has complete power. Eyes symbolizing perception. This slain lamb sees and knows all things and has the, the fullness of the Spirit of God. This is a a lamb who has all the power and all the knowledge needed to accomplish the mission that God has given him. And then verse 9 tells us that the four living creatures and the 24 elders sing a new song to this lamb. Let's unpack this imagery a little bit more. Who are the, what are the four living creatures? Well, if you go back a bit in the chapter, and actually to chapter 4, it tells us that the four living creatures are these angelic beings that are near to the throne of God. Part of the inner circle of God's presence in heaven. And these four living creatures have six wings, John says. And there are eyes covering 
these wings on the inside and on the outside. Again, eyes, a symbol of perception, awareness. These are the kinds of creatures that we will encounter in heaven. Heaven is not going to be a boring place. Four living creatures surrounding the throne of God. And then these 24 elders. Who are the 24 elders? Um, I read one commentary and it said that there are 13 theories about who the 24 elders are. <laughs> Would you like to hear all these this morning? I didn't read them all. I confess. But, uh, <laughs> yes, the theology professor says yes. <laughs> Some say that these 24 elders are also angelic beings. They're part of the the hierarchy of angels because they surround the throne of God and they're distinct from the saints of God. Other people, and I kind of lean towards this, is that somehow these 24 elders represent the fullness of God's people. You have 12 tribes of Israel and you have the 12 apostles. And somehow they represent the fullness of the people of God. But whoever these 24 elders are, what's more important for our purposes is what they say. What they say about the Lamb. The 24 elders and the living creatures say, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Speaking to the slain Lamb. Now, in the ancient world, uh, important documents we know were written on, on scrolls. And these scrolls would be sealed with wax seals. And only the person who had the authority to break those seals could look and see what's in the scroll. And sometimes that person would be given a signet ring. And the ring, the imprint on the ring would match the imprint on the seal. So they had to kind of match up. So they didn't have passcodes like we had. We have, but they had these signet rings. And if you had the authority, then you were, of course, allowed to Break the seals and open the scroll. And here the point is that the, that the lamb has the authority to open the scroll, to, to break these seals. And, and the whole question, the whole section rather of Revelation here from chapter uh, 4 through 5 is this question. Who has the authority to open up these seals? Chapter 5, verse 2. John says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And John says, no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to do this, to open up the scroll and to look into it. And John says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy. No one had the authority. To open up the scroll or to look into it. Now why is heaven waiting for someone to open up the scroll? And why is John weeping that there's no one authorized to do this? Well, because as you read on in the book of Revelation, particularly 6, 7, and 8, you will see that these scrolls represent God's plan for the world. God's unfolding of history, God's control of history in judgment and in salvation. As you read about these scrolls, you see that God is active in history through judgment, bringing about things like 
war, famine, and economic distress. He's active, he's sovereign even in these things, calling people to repentance. He's active in judgment and he's active in salvation. That he will save his people. In fact, as you, as you read through this section of the seals, you see that there's a section where the lamb who was slain, it says, will lead those who have been martyred for him, who've been slain for him as a shepherd. He will become, the lamb will become a shepherd, leading these people who've been martyred for their faith to the waters of life. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Jesus will fulfill this role. Psalm 23, the risen Christ will save and redeem a people for himself. And so, John was weeping because if no one can open the scroll, it means no one is in control of history. It means no one has the power to conquer evil. No one can guarantee that God's people will be saved. No one can promise ultimate peace and the restoration of all things. If no one can open the scroll and administrate this plan. You know the line in Macbeth? Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow it's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. In other words, that's a a worldview that says history is meaningless. It's just one thing after the other, full of sound and fury, war and evil, signifying nothing. But this vision tells us, no, that there is a Lord of history. History is not meaningless. There is someone worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. It is the crucified and risen Lord. He's sovereign over history. And this is something that we need to remember, brothers and sisters, as we look at the news, as we see the headlines, as we sit in front of the cable news and look on Twitter or however we get our news. There is a Lord of history. Nothing that's happening is taking God by surprise. He's not wringing his hands. He is working out his purposes in the world. Now, why is Christ the Lord of history? Why is he in charge? Why can he guarantee the salvation of the people of God? Well, this new song in Revelation 5 tells us, For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. By your blood you ransomed people for God. That word ransom there has the idea of buying something in a marketplace. And the NIV translates this, by your blood you purchased people for God from every tribe, nation, language. So this idea picks up an Old Testament concept and that a slave could be redeemed. If you wanted to set somebody free from slavery, you could pay a redemption price. A price that would set them free. 
the ransom. And so by his willing sacrifice, by his blood spilt on the cross, Jesus, who was the perfect Lamb of God, paid the price of redemption for us. We are free, we're set free from the penalty of sin, which is death. We're set free from condemnation. We've been hearing in the news, we've all been hearing, I think, in the news about the world's richest man, Elon Musk, who's going to buy one of the world's most valuable media properties for $44 billion. $44 billion. He's going to, Elon Musk, pay that an enormous amount of money to own Twitter. Friends, the blood of Jesus is worth more than $44 billion. It's worth more than all the money and precious jewels in the world because the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, who is perfectly God and perfectly man, uniquely positioned to offer this sacrifice, perfectly God and perfect man, that sacrifice gives us something that no money could buy And that is, we are made right with God. We are at peace with God. He forgives us of our sin, and our sin no longer condemns us. Through his shed blood and his empty tomb, Jesus promises us eternal life with God. We have been ransomed by his blood, the precious blood of Christ. And if we ever feel that we're not worthy or we ever begin to doubt our worth, I should say, to God. If the enemy condemns us as we struggle to live a life of faith, when we fall short in our own eyes or in the eyes of others, we need to remember the price that was paid to purchase us. First Peter reminds the Christians that he's writing to of this in First Peter 1. He says he's encouraging them, he's imploring them to conduct themselves with fear throughout the time of their exile. In other words, to pursue a life that's pleasing to God even in difficult times. And here's the reason why. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold. How are we ransomed? With the precious blood of Christ. Like a lamb without blemish or spot. Remember the price that was paid for you. But notice that what this song is really about is not what we get. It's what Christ gets. The lamb who was slain gets a people who's going to praise him. A global people who's going to praise Him and acknowledge His worth. They understand that they have been purchased by the precious blood of the Lamb of God. They recognize His worth. They're going to join this song of praise and adoration that is going on in heaven. They're going to join it even now because they recognize the worth of Christ. Do you recognize the worth of Christ?
today. You see, John is writing to a people who are tempted by rival claims of authority and power, namely the Roman Empire. And everywhere they went in the Roman Empire, there was a reminder of the greatness of the emperor. The statues, the coins, in the temples, there was the emperor telling the Roman citizens, the people that John is writing to, no, this is the one who has authority. This is the one you ought to fear. This is the one you ought to be loyal to. Loyal to. And so there is a temptation living under that to compromise on their loyalty to Christ. And John is reminding these people, and we need this reminder, we need this fresh vision of who Christ is and what He's done for us so that we can stay faithful to Him. Eventually, the song says, it's this kingdom, the kingdom of Christ and His people, this this priesthood who's going to serve God now and for eternity, it's this kingdom that's going to reign on the earth. This kingdom will reign. The kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of the slain lamb. What a breathtaking claim. I mean, it must have sounded for the early Christians as they are living under the control of the Roman Empire to a certain degree. To hear this claim, it's astounding. No, the Lamb who was slain is the one who has all authority. Richard Bauckham, in his book on Revelation, said that John's vision of Revelation can be understood as the fulfillment of the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer. And the promise that these petitions will be fulfilled. Hallowed be thy name. God's name was not being hallowed in the first century in Rome. Thy kingdom come. God's kingdom had begun in Jesus. God's kingdom was growing in the first century. But there was a rival kingdom. That was seeking to destroy the kingdom of Christ. Thy will be done. God's will, it did not look like, was being done in the first century. And it certainly looked like after the crucifixion of Christ, before the resurrection, that the will of evil had triumphed. The emperor was worshipped as a god. If you did not pay homage to him, if you did not sacrifice to him, you could be killed by the sword or thrown to the lions. So how is it that the angels sing about the kingdom of Christ reigning on earth? Why do they say that the lamb who was slain is worthy to open the seals that he is the Lord of history? What's the basis of this confidence? It's because though he was slain, he is alive. I was dead, he says at the beginning of this vision, but now I'm alive and I hold the keys of death and hell. This slain lamb is not just a slain lamb, but Revelation 5, 5 tells us he's the lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered. By the cross and the resurrection, Jesus conquered the powers that put him on the cross. And so that is 
the confidence that we have, brothers and sisters. That's what we have to remember, friends. When we have rival powers clamoring for our loyalty and our devotion and our attention. There are rival powers in our world today, just as in the first century. The temptation and the pressure and the messaging to turn away from Christ, to deconvert, to walk away, to have nothing more to do with the church because of all its failings and faults. It certainly does have. But there is one who was slain for you, who bought you with his precious blood. You're going to turn away from Christ? We have all these temptations and pressures and messaging to turn from Christ and to doubt God's sovereign control over history. But the lamb who was slain is alive. He's conquered. And that's why as a kingdom of priests, we're called to be loyal to him. Even in difficult and dark times. That's how we can be loyal to him. With this conviction, a couple of years ago, there was a Chinese pastor named Yang Wei who was arrested by the Communist Party in China. What was his crime? He never spoke against the, the Communist government. Never preached against it. Never wrote against it. He was a rising intellectual. He'd been a lawyer and now he's a pastor. Gaining prominence. His crime was that he would not register his church with the Communist Party. He did not want to be under their rule. He wanted to be solely under the rule of Christ. And so after a time, they arrested Pastor Yi. And he's serving now a nine-year sentence in jail. And he knew that it was going to come to this. So he wrote a letter a couple of years ago. My declaration, he called it. My declaration of faithful disobedience. And this man who's now in prison wrote this, knowing that's where he was headed. He said, you can separate me from my wife and children. You can take away my career and my standing. You can ruin my reputation and destroy my life. But no one in this world is going to force me to renounce my faith in Christ. No one can raise me from the dead. Jesus Christ, he said, is king. He's the son of the living God. He is the Messiah. He died and he rose again. He's my king and he's the king of this world. And I'm going to stay faithful to him. It was his conviction that Christ is alive. The lamb that was slain is alive. And he knew the reality of that. And that's why he was able to take the stand that he did. Christ is reigning today as king. He's reigning through the church. As the word of God is preached. And one day, this vision of Revelation tells us that all creation is going to recognize who Christ is. In order to stand for Christ today... We need a conviction that he's alive and that he's with us and that he will equip us in our desire to serve him and be faithful to him. That's what we see in our gospel reading. 
the disciples needed this reminder once again that Christ was with them and that they could not accomplish what he was calling them to do apart from his presence. And so they went fishing. These were fishermen. They were professional fishermen. They had been fishing all night. And the risen Christ appears to them on the shore. They don't know who it is. And they've been fishing all night. And it sounds like me on a fishing trip. They caught nothing. And Jesus says to them, why don't you cast your net on the other side of the boat? And they caught 153 fish. Jesus has called them to be fishers of men. These are professional fishers. But they can't do it apart from Him. He's teaching them. You need Me. You can do nothing apart from Me. You need the presence of the risen Christ. And then Jesus feeds them. The risen Christ feeds them. And after this, He's going to pull Peter aside and He's going to restore Peter. And what's the commission He gives to Peter? Feed my sheep. But before you feed my sheep, I want to teach you, you need to be fed by Me. I can feed you. This is the lesson that Christ gives us today. His presence is with us today. As we join the song of the angels in heaven, as we worship Him, the risen Christ feeds us today. In His Word and in the bread and in the wine, He's with us. He's with us as we pray and as we worship Him. The victorious Lamb who is slain is with His people, His kingdom, priests, a priest. He's strengthening us and equipping us. And we need His presence. And we need to grow more and more dependent upon His presence to do what He calls us to do. He strengthens us. In times like yesterday when we had the memorial service for Deacon Cliff, as we stood by in Jefferson Barracks Cemetery, the remains of Cliff Curse, we needed to hear the word of the risen Christ, I am the resurrection and the life. The grave is not the end. The risen Christ strengthens us. He strengthens us. He can strengthen us as parents as we seek to raise followers of Christ in this generation, this generation that has many temptations to pull our children away from the lamb that was slain for them. He's with you in the workplace as you as you have to deal sometimes with very difficult and ungrateful people. He's with you in the workplace when sometimes you have to take a stand for what is right, and that's a costly stand. He's with you in your battle against sin, addiction, and unbelief. The risen Christ is with us. He's with our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. He's with us in the most difficult places and times. On Easter Sunday... A U.S. reporter from the Catholic newspaper, the National Catholic Register, went to a church in Lviv, Ukraine. And he said that when he went there, he saw, you know, sandbags and the statues being covered up to be protected from the bombing. It was Easter Sunday in Lviv. And he said the people kept coming to worship Christ. And after a three-hour Easter service, three hours, they shouted, Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. And then he visited a monastery and a seminary and he met the rector there of that seminary. And he said to this rector, 
What is it that gives you hope? How are you not able to fall into despair? This is a place where they're bringing refugees in to the seminary, into the monastery, over a hundred people, women and children. And the rector said, we have put our hope in the government. We've put our hope in the military. We still put our hope in them. But our ultimate hope has to be, our first hope is always the crucified and risen Christ. That's the hope that we can have because he's alive. Amen. We thank you, Lord, that you are alive. We recognize, God, that we don't understand. <laughs> we don't understand all. We, we need to be sometimes like children in our faith. And say, as the psalmist says, I, I'm like a child. There are some things that are too great for me to understand. I'm like a weaned child. And I'm just going to rest in the comfort of your presence. But Lord, we have been taught that you understand. You know you are in charge. And you are alive. And So help us to rest in the hope of who you are and your presence with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please